Texas talking oh. What was that that you said Texas talking oh. Gonna hoop upside your head Texas talking Tell me who can you trust When Texas guys Hi, this is Jose Menendez, state senator from San Antonio. I'd much rather be walking around South by Southwest, but I'm here because my good friend Texas Tribune asked me to introduce your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here with the Tribcast for the third week of March. I'm joined by CEO and editor-in-chief Evan Smith. Hey, Reeve. It really, that's old by this point. <laughs> Just, I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah, keep doing it. <laughs> Executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. And reporter Jay Root. The golden voice. Okay, you want to talk about old. <laughs> he's he's, oh the, only, he's the only one who'll say that about him That now. had dust on top of cobwebs on it. What are you talking about? Oh, goodness. All right, so we're here in Austin in the midst of South by Southwest, otherwise known as hell. Uh, but there have been a lot of folks here for South by Southwest... Uh, also, clearly, Jose Menendez, who would like to be walking around in it. Um, Evan got to... His, his alternative is walking around in the legislature. Yeah, I know. One is largely <laughs> yeah. better than One the other. One has people curled up in a ball covered in vomit, and the other is South by Southwest. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, but we've had uh, elected officials or have been involved in South by Southwest this week. We uh, have. I heard that Greg Abbott is having some kind of music part of South by Southwest hosted out of the governor's mansion. His chief of staff is a big live music freak. Uh, Daniel Hodge is really, really into this stuff and you know finally has a, a that was ross calling you a freak it. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but evan got to interview uh, senator Rand paul presidential hopeful probably like all of them well at this point. Th- th- actually as of the last 24 hours his people confirmed he's announcing on april 7th in all right Kentucky, so it's not and even you know the problem so not, not even probable, a possibility yeah. the probably is in this race yeah, i might I run that's well, why i've been all we're, over we're, iowa we're, we're exactly. in the we're Such in the foreplay stage of this presidential campaign just just do it already you know this is ridiculous every one of these people is obviously running there's no question about it Thank Smith, you. Yeah, they just, but but honestly, it, it's it's kind of annoying, don't you think? That yeah, just, yeah. Just, you're running. There's, there's people used people running. used to be really actually coy, and well, they there seemed to be some possibility right. that they might not. It's that the I difference mean, between now. lawyers and humans. The huh. lawyers prevent you from doing certain things with your PACs after you declare, right? Right, right. right. It's all about campaign finance. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it's a you know it's a fake that's you know. Right. Well, all right. On to Rand Paul. Evan, what did you learn from him at, at the South by Southwest crowd? Were there any surprises whatsoever? N- no. I, th- I think he's as advertised. And one of the charms of Rand Paul is that he kind of is who he is. He doesn't seem to change his message for different audiences. He seems to be pretty consistent about what he believes. Now, there are people who will argue that within the bucket of things he believes are things that are out of sync with his supposed heterodox Republican philosophy, you know, he he trends more libertarian than a lot of Republicans, and that may be in part DNA passed along from his dad, who trends more libertarian than a bunch of former congressmen. Ron Paul from Lake Jackson, who represented his district for many years. Rand Paul grew up uh, from age five in Lake Jackson, went to Baylor before going off to Duke Medical School, um, and, and clearly is cut from a different bolt of cloth than a lot of these other guys. Um, but at the same time, he has some fairly conventional Republican positions that may be out of sync with his purpose for being at South by Southwest. He said to me and said to Patrick Svitek and to others uh, during the weekend that one of the reasons he came to South by was he wanted to appeal to non-traditional audiences, which he, by which he meant young people 
the technology community and non-whites. I don't have statistics on how non-whites at South by Southwest. Well, it's a diverse. <laughs> it is a diverse crowd. I mean, and the reality some of them is, wear different color. The right. reality is Republicans. They uh, all make more than one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Still have work to do on attracting non-white voters, and and work to do on attracting young voters. I don't know the statistics on the tech community. There may not even be statistics on the tech community. But young people voted more than 60% for President Obama in each of the last two presidential elections. Even in the bloodbath midterm election of 2014, when Democrats got killed every place, young people, by which I mean under 30s, still voted for Democrats 55%. Mm. Um, In 2012, 28% of the electorate was non-Anglo, highest ever. And in that group, 71% voted for, uh, of Hispanics voted for Obama, 73% of Asians and 93% of African Americans. So for Rand Paul to come seeking those voters, he's got an uphill battle. And you have to give him or anybody else credit for going to places where candidates from his party typically don't go and asking. Greg Abbott, for instance, during the last campaign, went down to the Valley, spent a lot of time in the Valley, got 44% of the Latino vote, won a majority of Hispanic men. In part, just by showing up, you get an opportunity to to persuade people that you should be supported. I just think that some of his positions tend to be out of sync with those groups. Um, On young people, for instance, young people tend to be disproportionately sort of post-social issue, right? So like gay marriage, sure, they're for gay marriage. Not everybody, but a lot of them. Um, He's opposed to gay marriage. Or is more like, you know, we, we don't want to have... Which is actually in opposition to libertarians. Right. Correct. I mean, and in fact, that's one of the interesting things here is, is that a number of the positions he holds, you would say, well, libertarians are about getting government out of people's lives. But then there are some positions in which they say, no, we want to actually have a hand in this. Right. Um, he had given a speech earlier in the week at Bowie State College, a historically black college, talking about the overcriminalization of America, talking about Eric Garner, talking about how it's kind of a police state in a lot of communities and that... Really, he tied it to voting. He said that one of the greatest obstacles to people not voting or people, the obstacles to people voting is that people have felony convictions that prevent them from voting. We have too many people who are arrested and that that's a big, that's a big thing. Um, but he's not necessarily connecting yet on the issues that appeal to those communities. And he comes across in conversation with me, comes across on, on paper as a more traditional Republican than his brand would suggest. Mm-hmm. I thought he did fine in the conversation. Well, you know, South by Southwest you know? is like a, a venue where his father probably really would have been a star. I mean, and that's interesting to me because there is there seems to be a lot of daily, you know, his father is really sort of beloved, particularly among young people, a huge outpouring of support. I mean, does he fit that brand at all? Does he is there People uh, don't paint their cars for Rand Paul. People, you know, you still right. run by car, you still <laughs> yeah. run, you still drive by, you know, people with 86 Toyota Corollas that say Ron Paul for president painted on the side. He's going to he's going to need to be more different. Mm-hmm. He's going to need to differentiate himself. He's much com- much, much more from the pack. The, 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 part of the problem for Rand Paul is not Rand Paul. Part of the problem for Rand Paul is everybody else. Um, you have a massive, I mean, twenty five people who are actively considering running for president, and not all of those people have natural constituencies among young people or non whites or non traditional Republican voters. But it's you're subdividing and subdividing and subdividing the pie so much that it's really hard for somebody to break out. Here in Texas, our last UT Texas Tribune poll, Rand Paul was was kind of no place. Back in the pack. Back in the pack. But what he's done is interesting. I mean, you know, you've kind of got Ted Cruz taking, in some ways, the stylistic position that Rand Paul used to have. This is sort of the pure form of this stuff, unadulterated. 
And, you know, Rand Paul's gone to charm school and um, has adopted some other things to try to bring other people to his position without losing his hold on that position. It's sort of like taking the edges off. And as you say, he departs from his position on some things. I mean, he's, you know, he's against the libertarians on some stuff. You know, I'm a a non-interventionist Republican, but I'm going to sign that Tom Cotton letter uh, about Iran. And his argument is, well, we want to be the – we're actually trying to help the president because we want to be the bad cop so that Iran knows that if the negotiations don't go well, here's Congress back here, bad old Congress. But, you know, the people who liked Rand Paul because his whole point was let's yeah, not – I'm sure everybody who signed that letter was, let's right. help Obama. I'm sure that's yes. what it was. His whole <laughs> point was let's not get involved in overseas things that are not our business. The reality is it looks like a, you know, Daily News called him a traitor on the cover – um, but the re- issue is not whether he was a traitor. The issue is whether he was a hypocrite. And there are some people who think he was a hypocrite. You know, he he talks about um, wanting to help African-Americans, going to Bowie State College, as I said earlier. But he's on record some years ago as saying, well, we've progressed enough from a civil rights standpoint that maybe we don't need parts of the Voting Act, Voting Rights Act to be reauthorized. You right. know, that that's the kind of thing that. I'm not sure African-American communities think that, we oh, racism is solved, you know, right. problem solved, it's all I, over. I think right. that Rand Paul does stand out, though. I, I think that um, he has, he's got a lot of this uh, from his father. He, he, he picks up some of that residual support, and he's never going to – he's not going to, to beat the Democrats probably on the youth vote and, and certainly not on the minority votes. But he just needs to do better than Republicans traditionally do. I mean, you know, it was the, the last presidential election was pretty close. I mean, right. it could have gone the other way if Mitt Romney had done just a little bit better right. with Hispanics. But again, so. part of the issue is that, uh, well, the last election was actually five million votes. But 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 the but the your general point is not wrong. Now, the problem for someone like Rand Paul is even if you max out your opportunity with young people and non-white voters, young people were only 19 percent of the electorate in the last election. Even if you overperform relative to, to expectations on young people, you're only going to get a certain number of votes. But you Same gotta, within those communities. But the election he's in is the Republican primary. And if you get, Peace, if you get young people in the Republican primary, right. you know what he's got to do right now at this stage of the Republican primary is first not lose. You know, right. you, when, they, when they do the great first sort and 10 of the 22 mm-hmm. or whatever fall out, you want to be not one of those guys. Yeah. You don't have to be in front. You know, you can you can let, you know, Jeb Bush and Scott yeah. Walker tear each other to shreds while you just sit in the middle of the pack. I tend right to now, think, if you build a base that's in the Republican Party that doesn't yeah. vote in those primaries, that could that could be really if, valuable. If, if you ask me from this vantage point, you know, is he going to be one of the top half that right. survives the, the early stage? I think the answer is probably yeah. Well, you know, there are only going to be a couple tickets out of Iowa as the cliche okay, goes. Okay, a couple. Oh, so who well, are they and then? Speaking of those tickets, I mean, let's talk briefly about another uh, Republican uh, who we lay claim to in Texas, Jeb Bush. Um, we had a pretty fun story about Jeb Bush this week. Um, you best, know, from best picture ever. Best picture ever, where he looks like a mustachioed, you know, 1970s dictator. Um, but, Jay, tell us a little bit about what we learned in that particular story. Well, we, I was Jeb thinking we, we, more like porn star, but actually, I think actually dictator looks, maybe he looks like you a know, guy in the front of a, you know, Mario or, Vargas Llosa novel. Dan Aykroyd yeah. in that Bassomatic that, commercial. Evan, that was unlike from, you, I haven't spent much time with 1970s porn stars. That's because you weren't alive then. Right. That was from the time when he was uh, in South America working for Texas Commerce Bank. But we've learned quite a lot about Jeb Bush in the last few months, or at least I have. He was born in Texas, of course, in Midland, uh, to be precise. He followed his dad and brother to the very exclusive Phillips Academy in Andover, 
Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm struck by how we're just going back into this Bush lore. You know, the whole, you know, Prescott Bush and Poppy. It's our version or, of the Royals. It's yeah. whatever the Bushes and the Clintons. It's, you know. Right. And, and um, some of the, I went back and read the Boston Globe piece, too. Um, and, like, apparently he smoked a, a huge amount of pot when he was at Andover. Jeff Bridges uh, for president. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He called himself a cynical little turd. That's what he called himself. Um, and then we sort of uh, went large on the before Andover and sort of after Andover. Um, and and so, bef- you know. Uh, what did the pot do? Well, well right. <laughs> R- Ryan McCremmons did a really good job of digging into sort of the, the, the super early years. And, and he got a, a little copy of this uh, newspaper, handwritten newspaper they went around. And there was a Five little- Five cents a copy. Right, and there was a little item in there that said, George Bush gets elected chairman of the Harris County GOP, which was sort of his first political job. And, and so you can really see from those early beginnings that even in the midst of this kind of what seemed like a, a carefree childhood and a nice Houston neighborhood, you know, there was always the- the family, the family business, the family business, which turned out to be politics, um, and the portraits, the family portraits are just really incredible. Right. I mean, they're like perfect down to the person, every hair in place. It's like political grooming, basically from age five. Well, and they're super competitive. I mean, that you know, all these Bush books that were written back when George W. Bush was running for president the first time. Um, you know, I, again, I'm reminded by all of that, the the whole royal family aspect of it. Um, he was a walk-on on the UT tennis, tennis team because he yeah. was really good at intramurals. And he lived a, at the Doby. At the uh, Doby, right? Yeah, for anybody who's gone to UT and they, you know, go watch like foreign films. Right. <laughs> well, uh, Ryan Ryan originally had in there that you know the swanky Doby, and I was right. like, let me make sure that it was like <laughs> yeah, it was swanky. swanky yeah, sure, right. it was even it, swanky. No, it, no, no, no. It was huge at the time. The Doby was Doby. Mall was like a big but deal. Swanky? Even when yeah, I those were the those were the swanky dorms. Those, even was when I was at UT in in the early eighties, um, Dobie was considered a pretty cool place. But it's, it's well, again, I, I it may have been cool. <laughs> swanky. All right, it's Hamilton like College. <laughs> hey, I have standards. <laughs> right. <laughs> Meanwhile, in upstate New York. But you know, I mean, I'm curious with both uh, with both Bush and Paul. You know, these the the kids in these families. Basically, what's the connection to Texas these days with with either of them? I mean, how deeply do Texans relate to either uh, Jeb Bush or Rand well, Paul? Jeb's got a son. You may have heard of him. Uh, yes, well, once or of, twice. And, and Rand's got a surrogate son named Vincent Harris, uh, <laughs> who is his digital director, who has been very involved in Texas political campaigns and very successfully so, and I think is an anchor. I mean, I joke about Vincent, but Vincent is actually a significant connection. They've opened a, an office in Austin because they believe that the innovation of the tech community can be harnessed in some fashion. Well, and they're from here. Business. I mean, you know, I... They're from here, but do most Texans think of them as well, being I don't think most Texans here. are from here. I think right. most of the people well, in the state aren't from here. I don't here. care that, if, that, if that, most Texans well, think of them as from here. I care yeah. if we well, think a of serious, them as from There's right. a serious point in here. I mean, mm-hmm. if, the, if, if, you know, the Texans who are like four and five generation Texans, you know, these are, the tie is pretty loose. 
But if you're looking for something to identify with, you know, that one's like me or this one's like me, you know, it's it's a looser tie. And, you know, if you just moved here from Minnesota, it doesn't really matter. You were here. Look, from we, we have two former Bush presidents here. We have our land commissioner, who is Jeb's son. Pretty good tie. Jeb grew up right. here. I mean, I, I think Jeb is, is, is. Look, Jeb was born in Texas. Right. He was went raised in Texas. in Texas. He went to college in Texas. His right. first job out of college was Texas. Rand Paul was born in Pittsburgh. Right. He lived here from age five through high school and then went to Baylor for a couple of years before going off to Duke. I mean, those are relatively formative years. Yeah, that's, you we, that's your we, whole upbringing. We claim people as Texans who are here a lot less than that. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Carly Fiorina, okay, argue with me right. on that one. She was born in Austin, didn't spend a whole lot of not, time here. Not and then graduated from high school from here as well, right? Did she not? I thought she was here for just a brief amount huh? of time. I think she graduated Did from she high school. I, like, I think that's right. Came back here and graduated yeah. from high school. Point, point is, I think there's no reason for us not to consider these dynastic candidates well, to be ours since the dynasties are Texas dynasties and not someone oh, else's. Oh, we definitely consider them ours. Right. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and you know what it really matters, you know, when it really matters to the candidates is in this stage of the of the race when they're looking to Texas for money. You know, hey, I'm one of you. I'm one of your guys. I'm the native son candidate or the native daughter candidate. Mm-hmm. And you know, you ought to you ought to think of me. the The problem for all of these guys is that there's five of them or four of them with really good legitimate ties to Texas, competing. You know, in River Oaks and Highland yeah, and we Park. forgot to mention Rick Perry, who is obviously from Texas and spent he, a little an, bit an of time Texan. here oh, really? in the capital. Yeah, right. Well, and this is sort of the this is kind of what I'm talking he about. Never the didn't live here, right? Except the deep, for the time he was in the service. The, right. The deep, Pretty much. Yeah. The deep root is you know that if you're looking for a deep Texas root, that's the, that's Perry. You know, everybody else is sort of like well, likes to travel while. though. Right. Does like to Perry travel. So. This is the thing. Right. You have five people from Texas running for president. It's possible that none of them will win the primary here. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. I think that's – so the fact that you're a Texan doesn't guarantee you any special treatment. No, but it helps. Sure, but it doesn't guarantee you. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, speaking of no guarantees, we have a bunch of uh, former state representatives and and senators in Texas who have moved on to higher office. Rick Perry moves on. All these guys move on into higher office. And these were folks who were fiscal hawks in the legislature, didn't like to part with money very much. Now that many of these guys are running state agencies, uh, they are being faced with uh, the premise of having to turn around and ask their colleagues for cash. Um, We are going to talk, listen briefly to a quick interview that Jay Root uh, had with Sid Miller former state rep, now Ag Commissioner, who's expressed to the ledge uh, just how much money he needs. Well, let's wrap up with this. What would you say to sort of the average Texan who sees a conservative Republican, you know, uh, campaigned as a fiscal hawk and, um, you know, now the need is obvious to protect consumers? Um, What would you what would you say to somebody who might be skeptical about that? Well, in 2011, when the uh, we were in a $27 billion budget shortfall, and I voted to cut this agency's uh, uh, budget, uh, but we're not in that now. I'm asking for, and uh, it was a $54 million cut to the Texas Department of Agriculture. Uh, so I'm actually, actually, I'm not asking for more money. I'm asking for a, not even all of that be restored. I'm asking for $49 million of the 54 that was cut in 2011. Uh, be restored to the agency so I can run it in a manner that, that uh, uh, serves the citizens of Texas as this agency was intended to serve them. 
So you can hear that full interview on our website. Um, but Jay Ross, I mean, is this a trend we're seeing these guys who've moved into these offices and are, are now turning around and, and saying they need more resources than they thought? Yeah, the budgets of the last 10 years have got a lot of agencies running kind of on the red line. You know, they're sort of redlining their um, – you see it in health and human services agencies. You see it in other places. And you don't really think about it, but, you know, Glenn Hager – who was a state senator and a state representative before he became controller, Sid Miller, uh, who was a state representative before he became agriculture commissioner, Ken Paxton, a state senator and state representative before he became um, attorney general, were all really conservative votes when they were voting on the budget. And now that they're in office, they're going, holy crap, I can't take care of this, I can't take care of that. You know, there's a leak in the roof of one of the attorney general's office buildings that's leaking onto computers that hold Criminal evidence. <laughs> kind know, not, of important. It's not like nothing. You know, uh, the, the field offices for the controller have gone uh, without maintenance for years and years and years. And, you know, Jay's got a great litany of things that are wrong with those. Glenn Hager came out and sort of said, you know, this is the face of the agency, the face of the state of Texas. This stinks. It looks like a Texaco bathroom. It's, you know, it's, um, <laughs> it's just awful. And um, they're coming in and they're saying, you know, they're on the other end of the budget whip now. And, and the state's got a little bit of money and everybody's looking up and saying, you know, can we fix this? It's interesting. Yeah. I think there's a legitimate point that, you know, that was then, this is now, in the sense mm-hmm. that um, we had to cut when times were bad and now we need to restore that. I, I get that argument. But on the other hand, there, there, I don't remember a whole lot of talk in 2011 when a lot of these cuts were made about the fact that this is going to hurt. It was more like, nope, we can suck it in, we're, we're fine, tighten up the belt, that's the way we do it in Texas. And there wasn't really any discussion that I remember about, you know, people might not be getting a gallon of gas when they pay for a gallon of gas if we do this. Apparently um, one of the people not getting a gallon of gas was Paul Betancourt, yeah, right. right. senator from Houston. I mean, so do these guys, because they were recently in the legislature, do we take them a little more seriously? Do their colleagues take them a little more seriously that, you know, they're really in dire straits? Or is this sort of same as it ever was? I, th- I think it's rubbing the legislature the wrong way in, 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 in a few places. Um, you, the, the Houston Chronicle had a pretty good report about, and Larry Gonzalez, who was on this subcommittee, that oversees the ag uh, department budget was perturbed, uh, I gather. Perturbed gathered. with who? Well, with Sid Miller and or the Department of Agriculture, and he said that it was this was too much too fast for an agency. Um, but, you know, Sid Miller's point is, look, this, this didn't happen overnight, and we, we have a lot that we need to catch up for because, and that consumers are getting screwed because, um, you know, weights and measures is a concept that dates back to ancient times. And if, if, if the government isn't ensuring that you, you're getting the proper amount of goods that you think you're buying, I mean, there's something wrong with that. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think this, this you know, you had uh, Carlos Uresti uh, in the Finance Committee talking about that this is a perfect storm that, you know, for that all of these maintenance needs have been building up, building up, building up. There's $25 billion in exceptional items uh, being requested. I'm told that's an unusually high number. It's a very high number. There's also this unusually high number uh, when you look at the balances that will be left after the legislature. You know, uh, the if you take the revenue estimate from the controller's office and you just take the balances of that, when this le- legislature is done, if it does not vote to exceed its caps on spending, it will leave with $17 billion in the bank. $11 billion of that in the state's rainy day fund, $6 billion of that 
is the amount of money available for spending but that is above the revenue cap. And people that are looking around and looking at you know one-time problems or things that could be solved if you had a little money, Kevin Eltype's kind of a leader in this, um, are looking at that and saying, look, we've got the money, we can take care of these things. We're $500 million underwater on the Texas Tomorrow Fund. We're $7.5 billion behind on pension benefits. We're $800 million behind on TRS care and on and on and on. And a lot of those are one-offs. Mm-hmm. Some of them are you know, rolling expenses, but a lot of them are one-offs and they're kind of looking at it and saying, if you have the money, you ought to do this. What, what and, excuse? Can they give anybody if they have the money and they choose not to spend it? That, that to me, this is so interesting. This, to me, is the frame around this session. Right. This is the no excuses session. Can't blame the Democrats. Can't blame the rules. Can't blame the budget. If the business of the state is not done, it's going to be because you choose not to do it. It's not going to be because you can't or because somebody thwarted you or you had to somehow pass a change in the rules that would have allowed you to do it if only that rule – no. And one if argument, you choose not to do it, it's because it's if it doesn't get done, it's because you choose not to right. do it. Right. And argue, think about the right. hell to pay in 2017 if a lot of these problems aren't taken care of and oil prices continue to go down and then the money ain't coming in. There could I, be I, some. I, well, I think, I, you know, the, I think the, there's the more danger to people who say that it's guys. fiscally conservative to pay for it on the front end and the back end have a point. Cheaper to pay now than it will be to pay later. Yeah, but I think that you're trying to sell a diet to a bunch of people who don't want to go on a diet. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, a lot of the, the conservatives in Republican primaries, you know, regard this as a, as a classic test. If you really are a fiscal conservative, then you're a fiscal conservative even when you have the opportunity to become a spendthrift. And so by that standard, what has the Senate advocating for not counting tax relief toward the spending cap done? They're a bunch of fat guys now then. <laughs> the, you know, I think these guys— I don't guys, want to get all Eric and Greeter on you, but I think— these guys are in more think, danger politically yeah. <laughs> if, they, if they exceed the spending cap than they are if they take care of problems. More, well, more danger. I think they're in more danger that if they if they exceed the spending cap than if they you know say we're going to exceed the spending cap and take care of these pension problems. Everybody's going to go pensions. Why'd you spend more? So what kind of political danger are they in if they don't pass uh, some other major legislation this session related to gun rights? And we've got two different kinds of gun legislation largely that's still being considered. Uh, campus carry, uh, which allows for a concealed carrying among licensed uh, gun holders on uh, university campuses in Texas, and then the other is open carry, which would allow people with concealed handgun licenses to openly carry their guns, you know, in holsters in public. What's the status of these two bills and how close are we to passage on either? As as we speak, the open carry bill is out of the Senate and the version the Senate passed uh, requires uh, carriers of um, guns, whether open or concealed, to follow the concealed handgun rules, which basically means nobody under 21. So and you've keep, got to pass. Keep, you know, keep like, that asterisk in mind yeah. as you get to campus carry. So you have to, you know, so you have to pass the test. You have to do all the CHL stuff. Mm-hmm. There are arguments over how rigorous that is or is not, but that's that's the standard. The campus carry bill is coming up in the Senate, you know, later after the after we tape this podcast, um, and then both of these bills will go to the House. Campus carry will pass the Senate. It's got 19 sponsors. It's got it comes in with wings. It leaves with wings. Right. It's, there were some issues. It was delayed a little bit from being brought to the Senate floor, largely because there were questions around it, whether there were problems with the witness list and they committee. Had a technical and, problem. Right. On, they didn't right. want it to be killed on a technicality. So both of those bills are headed for the House, and you know the House is going to be the place. I think this session, you know, we don't actually know this yet, but the speculation has all been that the Senate's going to be the accelerator, and the House is going to be the brake. That you know that the old Thomas Jefferson line about the the cup and the saucer is flipped this time, and the hot populist center is the Senate, and the place where things cool off is the House. Um, I think the House, you know, I mean, just looking at the politics of the thing, it looks like open carry is 
you know, pretty much on its way. Well, and Campus it's, it's legal in like all but four states, including well, Texas. Well, you know, the so governor right, but that's, 44 that's, states in, in, in which it's legal. But if we're going to start, as someone said the other day, no, it, Whitmar but, said the other day, if we're going to start making decisions on the basis of what the other states do, then we may as well just legalize gay marriage, too. Houston and Dallas, I believe, will, will be the two largest cities in America with open carry if this passes. Um, Atlanta, I think, is the closest. Uh, but, you know, Philadelphia was brought up because they have it in Pennsylvania, but, like, it's really hard to get it in Philadelphia in these urban centers. Um, so when you start comparing, you know, it's it's easy to say that there are only six states that don't allow this. But if you really look They're at the states analogous. that do allow this, like right. in Boston, for example, Massachusetts does have it, but people aren't walking around open carrying in Boston very I'm much. I'm curious to see how socially acceptable it's, this is if it's allowed. And, and, you know, assuming it gets through and it's allowed and everything, what's the what's the normal social reaction in, you know, pick your context for somebody walking around with a gun. Houston, leave, leave, aside, leave aside that. So I'm a business and I would prefer not to have somebody carry into my establishment. You can still Can't say. Can't you still say no? Yeah. Is there an opt-out? There's, 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 there's a 30 odd 7 now. But see, now, seven. now they're talking about the 3007 provision, which would allow uh, businesses to say that, you know, you can't open carry in here. What I, I mean, I'll, I'll find it interesting. I want to see when the session comes around in 2017, if people are walking into the galleries, into the public galleries above the House and Senate open carry. Don't you remember during this the passage of the abortion bill in July of 2013 that the DPS was confiscating tampons, but you could walk in with a gun? Wasn't right. that right? Right, right. Well, tampons I, are incredibly dangerous. Okay, but I mean, open carrying in the gallery—I think that's going to be very interesting to see. I'm, I, yeah, I, too. You know, I so mean, you think so the house. Your your prognostication, Rostradamus, is that uh, <laughs> is that you, you, you open carry will make you it. You believe open carry passes the house. I do. And what would be your vote at this point of whether it makes it through, of whether campus carry makes it through the house or not? I think campus carry is on the bubble. I, you know, I think you know two things put it on What's the bubble. Argument? Yeah, I'm well, curious well, to hear. One the of educators them, who one don't of like them it. is that the chancellor this time is not a heart surgeon it's a former navy seal and this is the chancellor the of UT chancellor. university of texas uh bill so McGregor, who is the saying UT who chancellor more than the a&m chancellor who's for campus carry well the a&m chancellor didn't exactly say he's for it he's kind of said he wasn't against it he wasn't really sort of rallying well, but, i mean but, he but, said he trusts his students and you know he he said he trusts people on his campus to carry which to me is being for it okay mm-hmm. so emily says john sharp's for it that's fine uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, but he's not over there advocating for it. He's not over there saying you ought to pass this thing. McRaven's over there saying, you know, in a letter, you know, this is going to make the campuses less safe. And not just in a letter, but out in public. I don't right. think it's and, only because and I think of... it gives cover to anybody who right. is sort of looking at it and going, I would rather not vote for this, but I feel a little heat behind me. The polling on this is not really completely clear. It's split. It's, it's okay if you're, you know, right. you'll be okay with this in a Republican primary. If you're in a district that's in any way, in any way competitive... Um, it won't be. And, you know, I think a lot of this is close enough that it's situational. If there's a couple of bad headlines, if there's a shooting incident or something goes on that changes public opinion on this, I think, you know, these boats could but turn out But that could happen on either later. side. In other words, right. could, you, you, could per- right. you could permit campus carry and there could be something, or right. you could not permit camp- campus carry and there could be something. Right. But I think right. the voting, you know, the public view on this thing is not one-sided enough to give you any confidence, you know, and if those kinds of headlines come up one way or the other. Right. I think they're taking a risk here. Uh, uh, 
the Republicans are because of the polling. And, and Jim Henson wrote about this. I mean, right. you've got middle class parents who normally, you know, white middle class parents who probably would normally vote Republican who are talking about sending their kids to college and they're, they worry about this thing. And, and it's like they it's put it's put the legislature on the radar in a lot of households that normally don't even know what's going on down here. Right. Right. Well, if you would like to take a risk, you can uh, email us at tribcast at texastribune.org. Uh, and you can also now sign up for Tribcast alerts at texastribune.org slash Tribcast. Uh, we'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music. And on behalf of Evan, Ross, Jay, and our producer, Todd, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. I think, I think all, all right. this talk Sorry, of vomit Tom. can come to an end now. So all right. Let's, let's no go. more vomit. <laughs>